0: About two thousand rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in sea in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw that a demon possessed man, the one who had been who had, had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen seen it described it to them. What had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs? And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had, who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might go with him. He did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is God's Word. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Arcadia. We're glad that you are here. Yeah, all right. Thank you very much. I'm glad you're awake. Uh, You don't know this guy, probably, unless you've been to Tempe in the past. This is David Blakeman. Today we decided to do a little... Switcheroo, And so David brought his team over from Tempe and we sent Cody over uh, to Tempe from Arcadia. Uh, David gets the better of the deal because you only have to do two services here, right? As opposed to four over at, our, at Tempe and you get to go home and be done with, uh, after this, after I'm done preaching. So I'm gonna prolong this as long as possible. Anyway, David has uh, been a great friend. He's, you've been leading at Tempe now for uh, what? Two years, three years now. Um, three years you've been a part of the preaching collective with us, and uh, you attend Fuller Seminary, which is, you know, pretty cool. And uh, so we're glad that you are here. Welcome. Thank you for leading us today. And David's going to be back in just a few minutes, all right? Thanks. Uh, if you're new here today, my name is Frank. I'm the lead pastor of Redemption Arcadia. A uh, couple of um, updates that I want to give you. First of all, uh, we are, again, in the process of planting another redemption congregation out of Arcadia. We are planting uh, Redemption Scottsdale. Uh, Sean Mortensen, the elder from Arcadia who is doing that, is actually over at Scottsdale Presbyterian Church this morning. He's preaching there this morning. He's going to be preaching there the next two Sundays uh, as well. This is going to be the location of the new Scottsdale Uh, redemption um, congregation and uh, every month now for the last three or four months and going forward they have a monthly gathering of the uh, people who are interested in finding out more about the planting of that congregation and so that monthly gathering is tonight at 5 o'clock at Scottsdale Presbyterian Church. So if you're interested uh, at all in any way, if, if you just want more information, you're just trying to figure out what's going on, we would encourage you to go to the gathering uh, tonight at 5 o'clock at Scottsdale Presbyterian. Uh, and uh, he also, Sean also wrote a blog, which is on our website, the Arcadia Congregation website at redemptionaz.com, uh, giving us a little bit, bit of an update as well on on the uh, congregation. that. Uh, congregation is going to be officially launched and planted Uh, September 13th of 2015. So it's coming up pretty soon and probably sometime in August they will start to meet on a weekly basis as well. Second thing I want to mention is uh, the Citizens Concert is coming this coming Saturday night in this sanctuary, in this auditorium right here from 7 o'clock to 9 o'clock if you're a Citizens fan and you should be. uh, They are going to be here and we're going to be presenting them. It'll be a great concert. Uh, Please go online and buy tickets. they are only $15 a piece. Uh, You can go to the Connect Desk and we have an iPad back there where you can buy the tickets or you can go to redemptionaz.com, pick uh, the Arcadia congregation and you can buy your tickets uh, there as well. It's gonna be a great time. And then the last thing I wanna do is, uh, it was five or six weeks ago uh, that we announced that uh, our congregation has actually purchased permanent property. We have placed into escrow Uh, A a permanent place for us to finally reside. We've been leasing uh, this place for the last five and a half years, and we've been on the hunt for more than three years for a piece of property. And so we announced that we uh, placed that in escrow uh, a number of weeks back, and then we haven't told you anything since. And so I started feeling like it was time to maybe give you a little update on what's happening. And so here's what's happening. Things are going as well as we could have hoped that they would go maybe even better. When we announced, we said that we felt that probably we would close escrow if everything went well. We would probably close escrow somewhere around July 10th. I talked to Neil Pitchell, who is the um, uh, executive pastor over all of Redemption Church, uh, all nine and now ten congregations, uh, last week, and he said that he believes that we are going to be able to close escrow early. We're looking now at maybe around... Uh, June 15th to close escrow so it's going to be a little bit earlier we've also been having lots and lots of elders and pastor meetings about uh, architectural plans and budgeting for what we're gonna do with the property there's a lot of work that needs to happen on the property property was originally built in 1958 and really hasn't had much done to it since that time and so we're gonna have to go in and and do some work so we've been having a lot of uh, meetings about that Originally, we said that uh, we thought that we'd be able to move into the property sometime around March 1st of 2016. Uh, the architect said, nah, we think that might be a little different now. We're thinking maybe December 1st of 2015 of this year. So it's possible that we could be in there for Christmas this year. So that would be uh, really exciting. Yeah, that is really exciting. And so as a result, we have decided we, we need to get a little bit more aggressive about casting the vision for us actually permanently moving into the Arcadia Biltmore area, planting roots and having a faithful permanent presence there. Uh, And so we're going to take a little break from our preaching in Mark The first three weeks in June, and that's when we're going to cast this vision. We're going to talk about the property. We're going to talk about what we believe God has for us uh, in acquiring this property and going there. Uh, Remember that we were able to acquire the raw cost of the property. We were able to acquire for about 30% of market value, which is an amazing thing the way God has worked in in the life of this congregation to uh, enable us to be able to do that. And so we're going to be presenting that vision during uh, June 7th, 14th, and 21st. And so we would encourage you, those are going to be important Sundays for you to, in the life of this congregation to be here. So that's my update. And again, as always, if you have further questions, come and uh, talk to me after the service. I'll be up here as I normally am after service. Or you can email me or text me or call me or tweet me or whatever it is that you're going to uh, do. You can stand outside in your backyard and scream for me if maybe I'll hear you, if you do that. So there's your update on the property now. As difficult as this might be, we have to transition back into this passage of Scripture here, which is, think about it now. We're talking about this this thing where there's this demon-possessed guy that's too strong to be bound by anything or anyone, and, and the demons that are in him eventually go into a herd of pigs that runs down a cliff into a sea, and they all die. This is just bizarre, isn't it? This is one of the most bizarre passages in the new testament and yes i would throw even revelation in there it's just it's just interesting Uh, james edwards writes this in his commentary the description of the demon-possessed man in mark chapter 5 is one of the most lamentable stories of human wretchedness recorded in the bible yet i would also add to that that it is an absolutely beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ and of what I would term is Jesus' determined compassion. He has a determined compassion. In fact, that leads right into what I believe is the big idea for today, and that's this. Jesus will go anywhere, He will do anything, and He will offend anyone in order to accomplish His mission. He will go anywhere, do anything, and He'll offend anyone, even pig farmers, in order to accomplish his mission Uh, i've split this into three different areas i'm sorry i'm going to read these areas again because i just think it's important for us to really be able to pick out what's important in this text as it relates to their context but then also what's important in this text as it relates to us because some of us look at this text and say that couldn't possibly have that much to do with me i would argue this has everything to do with you and with me here today. So uh, the first section is just the first five verses. Let me reread it again. And they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but uh, but, but he wrenched the chains apart. And he broke the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Let me just say here, and I'll mention this again, but let me just say here, it's amazing the brevity with which Mark normally writes how much text he devotes to the strength, the abnormal strength of this demon-possessed man. That must be significant here that he's spending what we see two verses on this and then yet another verse verse 5 which I haven't read yet on the torment and agony uh, that he was in Uh, verse 5 says night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones so Last week when Justin was here, by the way, that was cool to have Justin here last week, right? When the, Those of you that were here, yeah, our planting uh, pastor, that was really nice. that We snagged him out of the nine congregations. I mean, I've got to tell you, you've got to be quick. Anyway, uh, we have a map. I, I promise this is the only time I'll do this during Mark. I thought, felt like this would maybe be the best time to do it. It's probably hard to see a lot of this, but I do have my trusty little... Laser pointer, which really primarily acts as a toy for my 100 pound Weimarimer. He loves to look at the red dot and run around. Brings us so much amusement. Anyway, uh, please don't call the pound. Um, There's Jerusalem down there. Now, you need to understand that it's not until the latter chapters of Mark that Jesus finally gets down there. The first half or more of Mark, Jesus really spends most of his time up here around the Sea of Galilee, and in the region of Galilee. Um, But last week when Justin was here, he got in a boat here and went across the Sea of Galilee. And so today, for these 20 verses, he's in this region here known as the Decapolis. Decapolis, which means 10 cities. It's the region of 10 cities. And specifically, he's in this area known as uh, um, uh, the Gerasenes, which is, is still... Uh, well-known even today as being a place where there's a lot of weird spiritual stuff going on and it's a little bit freaky and a little bit creepy. So it wasn't just this way back then. Lots of tombs still there. Uh, and, and this is where Jesus goes. And he gets off the boat. And so the inference, um, it's not necessarily that we can draw an absolute conclusion to this but the inference is that is that this is really close to the Sea of Galilee most people would say Jesus probably traveled a mile or two before he ran into this guy but nevertheless he's on the east side now of the Jordan River the east side of the Sea of Galilee and as I mentioned the amount of text that Mark spends describing the strength of this demon-possessed man should tell us that this is really important for us to pay attention to. I mean, just a few of the words. This is not even all the words. It says that he broke the chains that bound him and no one had the strength to subdue him. Kind of sounds like a U of A football player, right? Not even one amen on that. That's, yeah, okay, yeah, there you go, all right. I don't really care. It's just that you all care so much, I thought. Maybe not. Anyway, all joking aside, That word subdue is the Greek word dematso, which ordinarily, in fact, almost exclusively in ancient literature and in the New Testament is only used to describe trying to subdue a wild beast or an animal. It's rarely used in the context of trying to subdue a human being. So in using that word, Mark is signaling us to the the fact that there is a huge problem here, but even more, we certainly get the idea from the text that the people who lived in this area with this man were afraid of him, they were unhappy with him, They they thought of him as a threat. What we don't really see in the text but what many commentators have said is that originally when this man began to manifest these, um, these symptoms of the struggles that he was having, this spiritual warfare, dealing with evil, dealing with sin, dealing with demons, that the people tried to prob- probably tried to help him, that they were there trying to, to minister to him, to fix whatever it was that they thought might fix him. But, but we need to understand that nothing can save him. Not one thing can deliver this man, save this man, fix this man. Not one thing. You can bring him a a, a new philosophical school or worldview. Not going to help him. You can have a particular medical protocol. Not going to help him in this situation. You can come at him and you can say, you know, maybe we just need to change his circumstances. Maybe, maybe if we brought him happier circumstances into his life, he would be better. Maybe, maybe for many of us in the United States, we love the geographical solution to all of our problems. Maybe my life would be better if I just moved to Montana and bought a farm and they're sitting there going we don't know where montana is but we heard it's cool let's send him there maybe he'll be better that's not going to work either an attitude adjustment or even let's just be really compassionate really nice to him none of that was able to help him none of that could help him there's only one thing that could help him and we've read the text already so you know there's the one thing that helped him and that was jesus the power the authority of Jesus and the gospel is the only thing that could help him. And I want to tell you something. The story of this demon-possessed man is also our story. And and I know that for some of you, you're struggling with that right now because you're going, I'm I'm not possessed with demons. I'm I'm not breaking chains. I wish I was strong enough to break chains. I'm not breaking any chains. I'm not living among the tombs. I'm not living among the dead. And I would say, yes, you're right. Circumstantially, your your story is not the story of the demon possessed man but substantially it is every one of us has been influenced from birth by the fact that we are born separated from God, that we are in the midst of a spiritual warfare, a very serious and very real spiritual warfare that at times can manifest itself with demon possession, but primarily and mostly simply manifests itself through the corruption of evil and sin in this world, which we are all a part of and which we all partake in and which we all come under the influence and power of. And in that regard, substantially, we are exactly the same as the demon-possessed man and there's only one thing that can save us one thing that can heal us, one thing that can deliver us, and that is Jesus Christ. We need to understand that this is actually a story of us as well. And then it says that he lived among the tombs. What, what is that? He lived among the tombs? It means that he lived among the dead. This is, this is tragic imagery of what his life had become. In his life, with his condition, he might as well be dead. Nobody wanted him around. This is the only place that he could find refuge, the only place he could find any sort of comfort. He was as good as dead. You could say it that way. He was, and he was certainly dead to the people who were there in the community. And he was cutting himself. Why was he cutting himself? Well, the goal of any demon, the goal of Satan, the goal of sin, the goal of evil, the goal of the corruption that has taken place in this world since Genesis 3, the goal of all of that is to destroy any image bearer of God. In other words, the goal of it is to destroy us all because we're all image bearers of God, every one of us. So the goal here is just in any way it can to destroy the image bearer of God. And so Satan does this through demons and through sin and through evil in a variety of ways and physical torment is certainly one of them. But he also does it in other ways. He, he destroys us through emotional challenges and torment. L- let me suggest this. Uh, some of you, again, look and, and you say, well, why are you talking? I've got my emotions completely under control. I'm cool, I'm calm, I'm collected. Nothing, nothing riles me. I'm, I'm fine. Okay, Listen. The truth is, the spiritual truth is that you and I, all of us, every one of us, we are all emotional basket cases. Some of us just hide it better than others. But we're all at war emotionally. We just don't necessarily all wear it on our sleeves. And so Satan does it through emotions. He does it obviously sexually. Think about, just think about All right, many of you aren't as old as I am. Most of you aren't as old as I am. I've been around for a long time. It's amazing how obsessed we are in the public sphere today with sex. Sexual identity, sexual ethics, sexual behavior, sexual attraction, all that stuff. Satan is going to destroy the image bearers even through something as good as sex. He's going to do it there as well. Certainly, in, in direct spiritual ways, the greatest spiritual destruction we engage in is our own sin. Every time we sin, every time I sin, essentially here's what's happening. We are at least for the moment, we are disbelieving the truth of the gospel in our lives and we are trusting in whatever that sin is going to promise to bring us. At least for the moment. And, and, and I understand, I, I get it. I'm a sinner too. A lot of sin is really fun, Right? I mean, my friend. I've said this before. Schrader says this all the time. If you're not having fun uh, when you sin, you're not sinning correctly. Can I get an amen? But it's only fun for a season, and ultimately, it's that it's that song uh, that Jeff Bridges sang. You know, funny how fallen feels like flying for a little while. When you sin, you feel like you're flying for a little while, but you're actually falling. Sin leads to destruction. God. God's goal is to conform the image bearer to his son. Satan's goal is to destroy the image bearer any way he can. And he'll do that through neglect too. It's funny how there's two sides of this neglect story. Um, If you read a lot of the books on spiritual disciplines, you know that one of the most important spiritual disciplines that any Christian can engage in is solitude. Uh, even last week, I got to do that for three days. I went and helped Darby move out of her dorm room, hung out in Chicago for a couple of days with my two daughters and Then Jackie showed up for, for another day and Then I took off and went up to Wisconsin and was in literally in solitude for three days, reading, studying, praying, eating all the important things that you do when you 're in solitude and It was great and it was helpful and, and I just every year I just I look forward to that but if you're just steeped in sin if you've been running from god and running from the gospel and not trusting the gospel and now you're steeped in sin you also tend to isolate yourself and sometimes you'll even say no i'm engaged in the spiritual disciplines of solitude and you're just lying because you're just isolating yourself from what you really need which is christian community and prayer and the presence of god in your life through his people and, and so this can be manifest as well the destruction of the image bearer of god can be manifest through neglect through isolation one commentator says that that those possessed by demons are isolated they have great physical strength and they engage in self-destruction they are impervious to what we might call reason or common sense but what the bible calls god's wisdom they're just impervious to the wisdom of God because that would run contrary to Satan's goal in our life which is the destruction of the image bearer of God and we need to acknowledge also that this this behavior of cutting and, and crying out it's a sign of his agony. The people in that community had grown to hate the man and see him as a threat and want to stay away from him. And yet, even in the midst of that, we must realize that this was an image-bearer of God who was in agony and he just—he has nothing else that he can do but to cry out. I know that you and I don't loudly, proudly, in a public way, cry out in our agony. But every one of us has got our agonies, right? our personal, private, quiet agonies. And we're crying out in our own way. Privately, quietly. Sometimes we'll reach out. Sometimes we cry out. Sometimes we just say, I I can't take it anymore. But you and I know we're constantly battling this darkness that's in this world and we're crying out. What are our cries of agony? What are our self-destructive tendencies when our pain our emotional pain, our spiritual pain, our physical pain, our whatever our challenges are in our life, when it takes us to a place where we choose not to believe the gospel anymore, but instead to believe our idols and to believe our desires, and to believe the lies that the destroyer of the image bearer of God will bring into our lives. And then we look at the next eight verses, verses six through thirteen. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, "'What have you to do with me, Jesus, "'son of the Most High God? "'I adjure you by God, do not torment me.' "'For he was saying to him, "'Come out of this man, you unclean spirit.' "'And Jesus asked him, "'What is your name?' "'And he replied, "'My name is Legion, for we are many.' "'And he begged him earnestly "'not to send them out of the country. "'Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there "'on the hillside.' And they begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and they drowned in the sea. Now, overall, scholars have looked at these eight verses and said, This is clearly a foreshadowing or a picture of the judgment of Satan that's eventually going to come. The judgment of evil that, that all evil, darkness, sin, demons, Satan are going to be thrown into the abyss. That it's going to be gone at some point. And we see that imagery and something like it in Revelation. But there's some other stuff that's going on too. That's important, but there's other stuff that's going on too. For instance, this demon-possessed man comes by the leadership of the demons and fell down before Jesus. Again, that word fall down before him literally means that you are paying homage to one that you recognize as superior and who has authority over you. And he calls Jesus the son of the most high God. That's also significant because it's a clear and unmistakable recognition that Jesus is the transcendent, exalted God over any and all other gods and goddesses, whether they're real or imagined. And he's admitting the truth that Jesus has all authority and all power, that Jesus is king. And and it's funny because the Greek grammar here can make us stumble a little bit because It it indicates that the demons had been asked more than once by Jesus to leave, but had resisted to this point. Although ultimately the demons knew they weren't going to be able to stay there. It's it's like a little kid who's going to challenge the authority of their parents, even though the little kid knows that eventually the, the parent is going to win. Hopefully, amen there? Yeah, yeah, whatever. Okay. So we'll go back into parenting in another few weeks too. So that's what's happening here, but they know, they know that ultimately they're going to have to live, but they resisted by complaining and trying to negotiate, but they knew they were eventually going to lose. And so Jesus says, well, what's your name? He says, well, we are legion because we're many. That may be a reference to the Roman army back then. A full strength legion was 6,000, but a legion could also be 1,000 or 1,500 or 2,000. Apparently, this was not a full strength legion of demons. It was about 2,000. And then we see the pigs over there, pigs despised by Jews. Again, this was the Decapolis. this was a primarily a Gentile area. This was not a place that had a lot of Jewish influence in it. And the demon, the head demon, begged Jesus not to send them out of this man, uh, because, you know, demons love a good host. Demons love a good host. But so willing to go into those pigs willing to go into the pigs and look at verse 13 one of the most mystifying in all the new testament i mean how can this not intrigue us i want you to think about this i think it's interesting that the demons want to destroy the image bearer of god and realizing that they're not going to be able to do that that jesus won't allow that to happen they're thinking possibly okay, but how about if I destroy something that God has created? I may not be able to corrupt and destroy the image bearer of God, but I can do something to that which God has created. And Jesus says, okay, because in Jesus's agenda, it allows him to give this grand picture of judgment and to make a statement in a place that desperately needs the gospel. And so it, it is kind of like a negotiation. And and Jesus says, okay, go into the pigs, and the pigs rush into the sea, and they drown there. It's, it's really interesting. I believe it is the picture of the persistent nature of Satan, demons, and evil to destroy whatever they can of God's. But it is also a picture of the ultimate judgment that will come to darkness in this world. And then the last seven verses, starting with verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. That sounds a little goofy, doesn't it? They finally got what they wanted. They got the man clothed and in his right mind, but now they're afraid, and not afraid in a good way. And those who had seen what had happened. They described it to them and the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. As he was getting into the boat, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might go with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you how, uh, and how he has had mercy on you. And so the man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis. He began to proclaim the gospel, how much Jesus had done for him and, and, and everyone marveled at that. Now, you're, a, let's say you're an ancient 2,100 years ago pig farmer in the Decapolis and you just had all your pigs wiped out. Imagine how you would feel about this. You have to show a little empathy for these pig farmers, okay? I mean, some of you are really good at business and you understand and you you know how to read financials and and you know what a complex balance sheet looks like and all that you know what the pig farmers balance sheet looked like back then assets pigs lots of pigs swine pork chops ham bacon hot dogs that's it now it's wiped out now you get the white out paste and cut whatever it is delete it's gone it's all gone now, we, we like to obsess about the pigs in this passage. I know, I, I've been through this passage many times. We go, wait, wait, let's stick on the pigs. The pigs are important, they really are. But I don't want them to distract us from the real miracle that happened here. The real miracle is that the demon-possessed man is now clothed and in his right mind and he is saved and delivered by Jesus. He's healed. He's healed, he's been made whole. He's a properly functioning image bearer of God now. Can you imagine his relief and his joy that this happened to him? (sighs) One of the greatest desires that we have as humans is that we want to be loved. We'll do anything to be loved. But I want to tell you that A love that is earned really brings no joy. How can you enjoy a love that you are constantly worried about whether you've done enough to keep that love? How can you enjoy a love that you constantly have to do something for? The gospel love is a genuine love that brings genuine joy because we didn't do anything for it. This demon-possessed man didn't do anything for this. God's love is driven by grace. It's driven by unmerited favor. Jesus came to this region against all odds, weathering a storm, and he came and he extended this love, this grace, this mercy, this unmerited favor to this man. The gospel brings genuine joy because the love is rooted in grace. Those of you who Who are christians today you should know this love and know this joy and know this grace you can stand free of anything that the world has to offer not that the world and its offerings are necessarily bad but you don't have to depend on them because the god of the universe loves you through his son jesus christ verse 15 is fascinating However, when you contrast it with an understanding of this unmerited favor, this gracious love, they're they're looking at the man now clothed and in his right mind and a properly functioning image bearer of God, and the man that they used to hate and feel threatened by and now they're afraid. There's this great level of fear, and it's not a good fear. It's 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 not the it's not the fear that the proverbs and the psalms talk about. That that the fear of the Lord is the beginning. Of wisdom and life and knowledge and all of those things that's not the good fear this is a very bad fear and so they come and they beg Jesus to leave do you understand that in the gospel of Mark this is the first time that this has happened every other passage so far in Mark we read about the people flocking to Jesus and pressing up against him and he needs to retreat from the people because it just there's just too many and he wants just a moment to to be able to pray and to rest and to eat this is the first time that, that people have walked up to him and said uh Jesus we'd like you to just leave now you're bothering us we don't like you we're afraid of you every time I read this I, ha- I ask myself this question and I and I think I know the answer Are you and I more comfortable with known dysfunction in our life than with the potential of healing and health? I would say, yeah, we really are. We don't like change as much as we talk about it. We don't like the unknown. We can be guaranteed that things are going to be so much better, absolutely guaranteed, and we go, "Ah, no. We prefer our dysfunction. Why is that? Edwards has some insight on this. He writes this. Listen listen to this. The residents of this region resent the intrusion of Jesus. Such is the common response of the human heart to Jesus. Consider, most people, if they were asked, would probably say that they would like to see a manifestation of God. Sure they would. God, show me you're real. God, show me something. God, bless me in some way that is irrefutable, that, that says that you really do exist. Just do something, God, to show yourself To me, whatever it is, James continues, Edwards continues, but this story is a cold shower for such religious pipe dreams. When God manifests himself in Jesus, most people ask him to leave. We ask him to leave. Now certainly some of that fear was motivated by economic fear. There you go. How many of us are willing to stay in dysfunction because it's economically viable for us? Think about that. We, we refuse the health and the potential healing of the gospel because it pays well to refuse it. And there are other fears that we have when it comes to the unknown potential of health and healing. There's, there's things that we're just unwilling to give up for Jesus, certainly relationships. I've been doing this a long time and I know that, that Jesus comes into some people's lives and it begins to help them to understand that, that some of their relationships are unhealthy not helpful they're dysfunctional they're destructive and they look at those relationships and they say not yes I'm going to press into Jesus I'm going to trust Jesus I'm going to lean into him and I'm going to do something about these relationships even end some of those relationships if I have to and instead they say no I just I just really hope that I can add Jesus to these dysfunctional relationships and he'll help make things marginally better and we refuse to walk away from unhealthy, dysfunctional relationships. Certainly our identity. Oh, my goodness. We live in a culture, again, that it's just we are obsessed with our identity construction. Social media, image management, uh, who we are, what we do, how we express ourselves, what we have to say, broadcast yourself. Uh, the, the, this, whole, this whole ego broadcasting that, that we, this ego casting that we have going on in our lives. The image management uh, consulting business has become a $100 billion business in just the last 10 years. We're so obsessed with ourselves and the construction of our identity. Of course, sex, again, I know. If you're here for the first time, you're like, man, this guy's really obsessed with sex, man. No, I'm really not. It's because our culture is obsessed with it. I, I have to talk about it. People come to me all the time. When are you going to talk about sex again from the front? It's like, I just did it a couple weeks ago. Well, it's not enough. We are obsessed with sex. Listen, most of you, again, except Mr. Maddox over there, you're younger than I am, okay? You're younger than I am. You don't remember this. You know, th- there was the free love movement of the 60s. I was around for that. Remember that, David? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now let's go, other than David, let's go and ask everybody <laughs> what that free love movement has, you know what, they're, they're all most of them are all playing golf right now, trying to figure out their 401ks. And I'll tell you what they would tell you about the free love movement, whatever, it was fun for a while, really not that important. I'm not saying that sex isn't fun, pleasurable, or important, God created it. But we're obsessed with it, and we've decided now, as a people, as a race, we've decided this is where we're going to find fulfillment. Isn't that sad? Seriously, why is it so quiet in here? Am I hitting some nerves in here with y'all? For crying out loud, think about this. In a culture as ours, so protected, so buffered from genuine problems, genuine suffering, genuine poverty, only in a culture like this could we be having these grand cultural conversations about who we want to have sex with. That's right. Move somewhere else and see if anybody gives a rip about any of this stuff right now. Only here can we do that. I'm telling you, man, spiritual war is real. It's just really subtle and you're going, yeah, it's sex. I like spiritual war. The gospel comes along and says, no, 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 no. I have a way of human flourishing that is contrary to anything you've ever thought of and anything you've ever been told by the world. It's so sad that this display of power and authority by the true king results not in faith but in fear, an unhealthy fear. Isn't it interesting that the story last week ended in the fear of the disciples as well, kind of an unhealthy fear? This story also ends that way as well. We so badly want God to become real to us, and the truth is is that God, in all of his rawness, if we just had a raw God in front of us, he's pretty hard to handle. And Jesus pulls back from that because he knows what we can handle. He knows that. He he displays this only occasionally. And he knows that if he does reveal himself in an unmistakable way, people still won't believe. We're constantly asking God for things for proof, for this, for that, for a manifestation. And then when He gives it to us, we're disappointed, we're frustrated, we're even mad at Him for doing it in the first place after we asked for it. I mean, think about that that parable in Luke chapter 16, the parable of, of Lazarus and the rich man. So the rich man, he had all that he could have ever wanted in this life on earth. He had... He had sumptuous banquets every single day of his life and, and Lazarus would sit there and just wish that he could just get some crumbs off of, off of the rich man's table. But then they both die and the rich man goes to hell. He goes to Hades. And, and Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom. He goes to, uh, to, to heaven. And there's this chasm between the two that cannot be crossed. It's permanent. It's done. It's eternal. That's it. And, and the rich man is in Hades and he's going... Could, could Lazarus just dip his, water, his finger in cool water and put it on my tongue for a little bit of relief? I'm in agony here, please. Father Abraham, help me somehow. And he says, nope, can't do it, can't cross the chasm. Well, then please tell Lazarus to go and tell my family that this is real. But if they die in the same condition that I died and they're going to they're end up in this awful, horrible place, please tell them to go. If, if they hear from a man who is risen from the dead, surely they will believe. Here's what Father Abraham said. The rich man says, surely, Father Abraham, if someone from the dead goes to my family, they will believe. And Father Abraham says this. Jesus says this. They have Moses and the prophets. They have this. And that guy, Frank, who's constantly pitching a fit on Sunday morning, they don't need anything else. If they don't believe that, they'll never even believe a person who rises from the dead. Not even the other Lazarus from John chapter 11. Remember that? Some of them believed, but others went, I think we should just kill Jesus. People, when they're presented with the reality of the power and the authority of Jesus, which is all the power and authority we need, most just reject him. They run from him. They mock him. And then verses 19 and 20, I think are really critical. Jesus commissions this guy to go and tell everyone. He wanted to go with Jesus and he says, no, you have to stay here because the Decapolis is certainly one place that needed someone to proclaim the gospel in it. It was primarily uh, uh, Gentile, like I said before, non-Jewish, so they didn't have any influence of the Hebrew Bible or of God-fearing Gentiles there. And, 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 And... and, and, and so Jesus just continues to pound the fact that, that the gospel is for all nations, all ethnicities, all tribes, all college football fans, anybody can be saved by the gospel. So he sends him to proclaim the gospel. And it also shows, this is very interesting to me, it also shows that yes, sometimes we are sent places when we are sent on mission for God, right? Sometimes we get sent somewhere else, okay? Okay. What's really sad, though, is the number of people who don't realize that sometimes, in fact, more often, we're just sent where we already are. And that's what this guy does. Jesus says, no, you're not coming with me. I'm going to send you where you already are. Your testimony couldn't be any stronger anywhere else than where you already are. I want you to go and tell your friends right here, right now. How many of you, how many of us, how many of me, how much... Are we missing ministry opportunities where we are because we have this goofy idea that ministry is always something that takes place somewhere else? Especially if you have to cross a sea or go to a different continent. We are ministers where we are. And there's more irony here that leads to this more irony. Jesus tells the man to stay and proclaim, and in that sense, Jesus stays in the Decapolis. Do you understand that? They told Jesus to leave and he says, ha ha, I'm not really leaving. I got my man right here. Jesus' presence is there through this man's presence. What does that tell you about Jesus' presence wherever you go? It should tell you a lot. All right, it's time for me to land this plane, isn't it? Amen, yes, okay. Two quick points and then we'll land this. I want to come back and just... Again, I've been pounding on this, but the authority and power of Jesus. Consider this passage in context. We've already heard from those who had witnessed and heard Jesus' proclamation and teaching that that he taught with an authority and a power that they had never heard before. There is power when Jesus proclaims. Last week we saw that Jesus has power over nature. This week we see that Jesus has power over the supernatural. Next week we're going to see that Jesus has the power to raise people from the dead. We're going to do the story of of Jairus and the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. We'll see that Jesus has the power even to raise the dead. He is the resurrection. But you look at verse 19. And there is the center of the, of the true power and authority of Jesus in our lives as well as the life of the man who was saved from the demons. Jesus says, go to your friends and tell them of the mercy that God has had on you. We have that same power and authority because Jesus has shown His mercy, His grace, and His love to us as well. And that's true power and authority. And then second of all, Jesus goes where we won't dare. I want you to again consider this story in context. This entire story just cries out, unclean, stay away. For, for a Jew and for a rabbi especially, this guy that Jesus went to minister to is living among the tombs. He's living among the dead. A, 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 a rabbi was never supposed to even come close to being in contact with anything that re, had any relationship to death jesus went anyway he defied death and went anyway he doesn't resist the man the region of the decapolis was was gentile which is anathema to jews and not just that but one commentator says and really they were kind of like bottom of the barrel gentiles they weren't interested in god they weren't god fearing they had no jewish influence whatsoever they were hellenistic they had pigs around they they were the worst kind of gentile in the eyes of a jew Jesus goes there anyway. And and like I said, there were lots of pigs there. You know, pigs and Jews, not exactly a match made in heaven. Jesus goes in the midst of swine. The man who came also had an unclean spirit, a demon. This is not your normal, everyday evangelical challenge. Jesus goes anyway. By the way, there was a life-threatening storm on the way there and Jesus was greeted with a life-threatening storm the minute he got off the boat and he just keeps going. Contrary to all expectation, Jesus goes where it is difficult, even to the cross. Listen to what N.T. Wright says about this passage and all of the Gospel of Mark. This is beautiful. At the climax of Mark's Gospel, Mark's story, Jesus himself will end up naked, isolated, outside the town, among the tombs, shouting incomprehensible things as he is torn apart on the cross by the standard Roman torture, his flesh torn to ribbons by the small stones of the Roman lash. And that, Mark is saying, will be how the demons are dealt with. That is how healing takes place Jesus is coming to share the plight of the people to let the enemy do its worst to him to take the full force of evil on himself and let the others go free. It's because Jesus went to the cross that you and I can go anywhere. Let me pray and David's going to come and lead us into our time of response. Lord God, we thank you that Jesus was willing to go anywhere even into our hearts to proclaim victory in our hearts and our lives to stand over Jesus I, i'm sorry to stand over satan and to reject him and to reject evil and to reject darkness by his resurrection god we thank you for that we just pray that we would be people who would be sent as this man was sent and that we would proclaim the good news the mercy that god has had on us through your son jesus christ we pray it in his name amen